Welcome to the wonderful world of dance, bringing you exclusive interviews with top dancers and choreographers and reviews of the world's best companies across the globe. You can find lots more on our website at thewonderfulworldofdance.com. Hi, this is Savannah Saunders from The Wonderful World of Dance and today I'm honoured to introduce the acclaimed award-winning choreographer Annabelle Lopez-Ochoa whose prolific career has seen her create works for more than 60 companies around the world, from the English National Ballet, the Dutch National, Finnish, Washington, Ballet Black, Dance Theatre of Harlem, and so many more. And this year, Annabelle has been bestowed another award, receiving Jacob's Pillow Choreography Award to add to the long list of accolades. I have to say that I'm so excited to speak to the creator of one of my favorite pieces, the astounding Broken Wings, the life and work of Frida Kahlo, created for the English National Ballet. Hi Annabelle, thank you so much for joining me. Hi Savannah. So, here we are, we're in my apartment here today, mm -hmm. so it's so lovely to have you over from Amsterdam. Yes. yes. And here in London, which is fantastic. So, but with such a huge, extensive uh, body of work and award-winning career that you've got, I almost don't know where to start. <laughs> because there's so, there's so much um, that we could cover. So I was thinking, let's start at the beginning. Yes. Um, you trained with the Royal Ballet of Antwerp mm -hmm. in Belgium. When did your love of dance first start? Uh, it didn't start before the age of eight because uh, between my sixth and eighth year, I think I had a bit of gender dysmorphia. So I was a tomboy and I wanted to be a boy and I behaved like a boy and I dressed like a boy. Uh, until I almost succeeded to be believed to be a boy and so my mother said and now it's over I have a daughter and you're going to behave like one so I'm sending you to ballet and so you know a few months later there I was in these ballet classes that I hated because we were doing all these tiny little exercises that I didn't see the point um, and then in these two years that I did those exercises once a week we were preparing a, um, a performance and the day that I stood on stage, I finally understood why we're doing all these small exercises actually to express something on stage. And I looked at the older students and you know, I, I loved that they were so free technically to express even more than I could at 10 years old. So that's when I got hooked after two years being forced to go to ballet to become a girl. Uh, yeah, I, I just got hooked to the way that um, to the fact that you can express something without words. And was it at that moment or was it over time where you decided you really wanted to be a professional dancer? Um, no, I didn't even think that that was um, you know, a profession. I wanted to be either an engineer or a doctor. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, the, the situation at home wasn't the best between my parents. They were fighting a lot. There was a lot of tension. And one day, that same teacher that, you know, taught me my first plies, she came and talked to my parents and said, Annabelle has talents and there is an audition for the professional ballet school. Would you be interested? So they asked me and I didn't think of becoming a professional dancer. I was only thinking and focusing on the fact that I would have to go to boarding school and I could escape the situation at home. So still at the age of 10, I did not decide to become a professional dancer. It, became, it came much later, that, that conscious decision. And when you made that decision, um in terms of entering, you know, leaving your professional training and going into your company life as a dancer, what was that uh, transition like for you when you were starting out in your career? 
Um, I think that the, the conscious decision that to become a dancer is actually a real profession and it's a lifestyle was around, I was 16 years old. But I discovered choreography way before, when I was 11, and I thought, I remember, you know, wishing in silence that if I could do that the rest of my life, I would be really the happiest person on earth. At the time, of course, I didn't know that it was a profession that you could actually survive from it. Um, so yeah, I don't think that during, I was trained as a classical ballet dancer, and, but I really could not feel, you know, picture myself in a tutu and be a, a you know selling an audience that I was a princess and that I was elegant because I think that tomboy still now is ingrained in me um, so it was very clear in those last two years of my education that I would go into a contemporary dance career which I did at the age of 18 I went to Germany to uh, two dance uh, theater companies and then when I was 20 I joined uh, Jazzix which is a contemporary jazz company in The Hague and they folded after three years so I had to find another work and then I joined the Scapino Ballet for eight years. And this uh, journey from you know, classical training into contemporary um, and you talk about um, really even at the early stages of being 11 which is quite remarkable to be thinking about you know wow I love creating work so early on what, what was it that, uh, even as a young child, made you think actually creating work was something that was you know, intriguing to you? What was it about? Um... Uh, I think the, the pure fact of when you're in the studio for one hour creating a new reality, your focus is so high. I always say it goes into your third eye. It's almost like a meditation. Um, time stops. It's the... the yeah, the experience of that one hour felt like five minutes until, you know, that teacher came back and wanted to see all that we had created. And um, I think that I got hooked and addicted to the fact that I could create new realities and tell stories because I've always had a, a penchant towards, you know, narrative, although I did a lot of, you know, abstract work in the beginning of my career. Um, and that's, you know, that has followed me during my uh, career as a dancer, that whenever there was a workshop for choreographers, I would enroll and say, I want to be in it uh, and make something. And I would always find a free studio. I would always find free time in a really heavy schedule. And I was always, you know, ready ahead of time of the, of the premiere of the workshop. And then one day, I remember I was 24, the workshop got canceled. And so we had, you know, the big news, and the big news that the director came to bring us was that we were going on tour to Italy. So everybody was cheering and I wasn't because they canceled the workshop. And so the, the director noticed that and he was like, what's, what's going on with you? So he noticed that I was really passionate and dedicated and very uh, organized about it. And so he said, well, I'll come and see your piece next week. And indeed, I was almost, you know, like one minute from the end. And then he's the one that invited me or, you know, gave me my first commission for a, a classical, no, not a classical, a contemporary company, Scapino Ballet. And uh, yeah, I'm very grateful that he opened um, that avenue of you can actually, it, it can be a profession and not something you do in your free time as a hobby. And what did it feel like when you presented your first work? Do you remember those moments? Oh yes, it's horrible. <laughs> uh, I think that I was very uh, embarrassed and I would sweat 
and I felt that everybody else had a very trendy and hip choreography and I wasn't hip at all. Um, but weirdly enough, I got a very good review for it. Um, and I think that, and that's what I tell young choreographers, don't try to follow the trend. Try to be as, as close as possible to you. And when you're 24, these are the stories you tell. When you're 44, you tell different kind of stories. So uh, somewhere an audience can feel the honesty uh, of a work. And I think that without knowing, I did that at the beginning of my career. And that's why I got picked out as somebody that had a voice and that had something to say, because I always had something to say. It couldn't be just, you know, steps on, you know, on, on music that I liked. It had to be about something. Um, so yeah, it's uh, still now, I mean, I'm a little bit less embarrassed when the curtain goes up and my work is being presented. But I always say that I, I experience a little death. Uh, the moment the premiere uh, happens because for me being a choreographer is being in the studio creating reality and putting all the elements of you know um, the dramaturgy the lights the costumes the, the pace and then once it's done then my work is done then I'm not needed anymore and yeah it's it there's a it's empty and yeah that's it's always very sad for me so i'm not i'm never really in a celebrating mood um i think i'm in much more celebrating mood when a piece get re-presented uh, later because i feel like oh all that work and, and and passion that i had you know like with broken wings in 2016 got presented again in 2019 and that really fills my heart with happiness but the premiere itself is never a good moment for a choreographer and as a choreographer, um, what elements have you um, taken from your, your performance career and working with other choreographers? Were there certain things that you felt, felt worked for you that you've adopted or that really have you've taken throughout your own career? Yeah, uh, for me, I, as a contemporary dancer, I've uh, performed a lot of abstract work and I've worked with a lot of choreographers that didn't tell me what their pieces were about. Uh, and that really frustrated me as a dancer. And that's why also I ended my career because I'm, I was just like, well, you know, if, if we're gonna sweat, let's go to the gym while we're sweating on a stage. So I needed intentions and uh, I was very infamous to invent my own stories with you know, the abstract work. Like there was a reason why I came on stage. There was a reason why I ran off stage or I walked off stage or I looked back. You know, I just always had these stories in me. And that's what I use now, even when I do a more abstract work, there has to be an intention and energy why you come on stage. And that's why I guess uh, I got picked out to, you know, uh, create my first narrative for the Scottish Ballet, uh, which is, you know, a streetcar named Desire. And I feel very comfortable doing a narrative because it suits me. It's the way I thought as a dancer. So, yeah, I always try to uh, engage the intention and the want of a dancer on stage because then it stays more alive. Otherwise, maybe the premiere is great and by the third performance, they're just repeating themselves. Mm. And how do you approach um, creating new work? What is, do you have a specific process that you go through every time or is it different? Uh, when it's an abstract work, so uh, based on a theme, then the theme is there and I try to find music that fits the theme. And then I usually know approximately what the costumes are gonna look like, the colors, are they in skirts, are they pants, or is it gender uh, unifying? Um, 
And when it's a narrative, then I really sit down a year in advance and think, first I do the whole the research about the theme and you know the, the person I'm gonna talk about. And then I sit down and write every scene hand by hand and oh hand by hand like I have two hands uh, you know scene by scene and I always work with a, a dramaturg she's director Nancy Meckler and so I you know tell her the concept of how I think this piece should be told and then we go scene by scene and we build it together and uh, yeah then of course that's on paper and something that's written on paper is not dance so as you go along in uh, in the studio you do adapt and change your your script uh, once you have the script in a narrative then the music comes second so that's the difference between the abstract works and the, and the narrative work and um, when you're in the studio with the dancers do you have all of the the, the steps set out in the scene by scene or is it a co-creation type of environment how does it work for you uh, I, i'm still a very active choreographer so i move and i show and i stand up all the time uh, and you know at some point in my career i will have to work with you know improvisations and tasking and but i haven't done that and i haven't yet figured out how to do it uh, although sometimes you know my neck is stuck or my i'm still you know moving like that uh, no i like to um, embody myself what the characters are so you know i try to think you know if diego rivera for example is you know 20 years older than um, than frida kahlo and and bigger and fatter you know how would he move how would i you know even without the fat suit how would he move and you know i try to find a very specific language for each character and therefore i feel that i have to move and and, and show it and so all the movements come from me but i don't prepare in advance i just improvise in front of them then i look at the choreography on the dancer and then i mold them to their abilities and what looks good on them or not and um, do you think given that you have created work for such a vast uh, number of companies and you've worked in theatre and film. Do you have a particular choreographic language? Is there, do you, do you feel that there is a way of describing your work in a specific way? Uh, I don't think so because I love using and mixing styles. Um, and I think it's a very difficult question to uh, answer, but I did ask around. Uh, to very close friends of mine and they say that they can see my style in the transitions from scene to scene or how the music goes from one to the other they say that I never use blackouts that's true um, there's a certain logic and there's a breath that I have in all my work so I'm very much aware of that when I take the audience by the hand, I pull them, or I say, now it's a moment to reflect, now it's a moment. So it seems that that is very visible in my work, but I don't have a particular style. Um, you know, I just, because I'm an employee of the piece. So the piece tells me and dictates 
what I have to do. So for example, I just made a piece for the Washington Valley called Delusional Beauty, and it was about a, a work by Salvador Dali, and there's this woman with a head of, you know, a flower that's walking very, like, you know, Bhutto-like, and I wanted all the other dancers around her to be butterflies passing through her garden. So I looked for butterflies' movement. But, you know, Frida Kahlo does not have those movements, so in every piece, I, it's a different signature, I feel. And, you know, in the beginning of my career, I thought, oh, that's really a flaw, that's a weakness of mine, because I don't have a style. And, but then I thought, no, I want the audience to come and see my work, and when the curtain goes up, they're like, and what did she come up with now? And, you know, I want to surprise the audience and take them on a journey and not say, well, you like that piece, well, you're going to get the same. I just don't do that and it's it's a risk that you take because you know when you uh, directors they they you know commission you because they've seen a work and they're hoping that you do something like that work so uh, I've noticed that now you know I asked them what is your company about can I see videos which piece did you see of mine why is it that you're inviting me and so I can kind of feel where they want me to go and you know it, it never feels um, like I'm, you know, being put into a box because, you know, if you want a tutu ballet, I've got two of them, I would love to do a third one, you know, there's some, always something to research. So, but, you know, most of the time they say, no, you're free, just look at my dance and make something on them, for them, and that's what I do. And where do you get your inspiration for all these d diverse pieces, as you say, with such a, a wide repertoire and, you know, always creating new work, where do you get the inspiration? Well, uh, the inspiration always comes from my experience towards something that happens in society, but, you know, it can be a human interaction, it can be um, uh, paintings, I love paintings, and I, did, I didn't realize that I loved paintings so much, but <clears throat> I was meditating about it why is it that i use so many painters in my work and i think that when you know when i grew up we had a painting of renoir and it was the portrait of a young child looking out and i would be observing it and thinking i'm sure that at night when we sleep you just take a break and have a banana or something like that. I mean, you know, you have been painted for me to enjoy your frozen picture. And so when you have that imagination that you think that the painting is actually real and it moves when you look away, every time you look away, that's basically what I'm doing with choreography. I'm imagining that those paintings are moving and that there's a before the moment that everybody knows and then the moment after that painting is made. And you know, so that's, uh, that's been a big part of my inspirations are painters and painting. And um, yeah, the rest is really things that fascinates me, that makes me angry, uh, that makes me laugh, that, you know, memories, childhood memories, a lot of them come back into my work and, um, you know, the fear for the ocean. I love water, but, you know, what happens underneath, so I made a whole piece about that. Um, yeah, so it's, it's about very, a variety of subject, but I'm always related to it, what it is that I think, and, you know, my, the questions I have about that subject. And I wanted to ask as well, um, in terms of 
Actually, I can't remember what I was going to ask. Because <laughs> you had probably <laughs> edit that out. a different <laughs> idea. Oh, that's good. I'm going to... Uh, yeah, I had two things that came to my mind, like right, right, right at that very, very moment. Um, but I did want to ask, um, with this storytelling that, um, approach that you have, and it's that it, it gives the impression that your mind is constantly, you know, whirling up these wonderful stories in, in your head, and, and, you know, you're really considered and responding to the things that are going on around you, and, and what you see, and what you feel, and experience, which, but I'm just wondering how, um, uh, I don't know quite how I don't know quite how to how to put it. How does it feel for you to have this voice and to use this voice and to present this voice? Yeah. Um, well, I'm aware that I'm one of the very happy few female choreographers that is given uh, quite many platforms. So smaller stage, bigger stage, and you know some big platforms where very talented choreographers would never get a chance at because of, I don't know, lots of different reasons. So I, I know that I'm very lucky. It's not because I'm the best. I'm just really lucky. Um, so I'm aware, I, you know, I've been, you know, uh, um, looking at what's happening in the classical ballet world and you know I love stories so obviously I go to their full length and and I you know I love stories that's why I go to the movies I love stories that's why I read books and I feel that uh, in the classical ballet world we should you know make a little bit more effort to come with new stories and also the stories that are there and are very valid and gorgeous and beautiful that's why they still exist uh, have a quite archaic um, way of putting uh, the woman on stage which I can't relate anymore to it so I think it's very pretty and I look at the technique and it's all looking gorgeous and I paid money to escape and to look at gorgeous things but I think it's time that we all you know get our hands together and and see how we can modernize those stories and modernize the relationship between men and women uh, on stage and the behavior that you know it has changed we're not anymore in court uh, you know and uh, we're not peasants anymore we're different kinds of people um, the classes are not as big as when those ballets were made um, so yeah I feel that um, I'm honored to have that uh, that platform and I feel that it's my duty to use my voice to you know instead of complaining about the fact that there's not new stories just go out there and put them there and there's a risk because you you don't have a precedent you you don't know if it's going to work out so I'm aware also that you know companies are taking the risk with me wanting to make a new ballet a new story uh, and you know like I said to you before um, sometimes the ballet isn't finished on the first viewing it will need a couple of years to develop to find the right pace the right uh, intentions and uh, the right choices um, so yeah um, I, I'm on a quest I'm on a journey of hopefully you know inspiring also younger choreographer to to make a little bit more effort and come up with new stories and there's so many beautiful stories out there and I know that some stories are difficult to translate into dance uh, but also you know it's it's up to find a way to combine a theater director or a dramaturg with a choreographer and together these two forces can come up with ideas how we can tell those stories. I think also um, with you know these new stories and having a, a female choreographer um, seeing the role of the woman 
portrayed differently, but also I think the gaze as well to be different rather than having the male gaze, you know, looking at society yeah. and, and to have a, a different perspective I think is really important for audiences. Yeah, I mean in, in, in that sense for me Frida Kahlo, what she, uh, ex you know, what her work finally said much many years after she died is that it was a female artist putting the woman unprejudiced unsalted like we are and you know our pains are you know and you know it's it's very honest and and very direct this and there's no sugar coating to it and only we can know that men um, are very good at portraying them but sometimes they romanticize what's going on and they romanticize how you know young women are seducing or being seduced maybe our ways is you know a weapon we use it in such a way to be really girly but actually it's it's a weapon because we see the effect we are not that it's and you know um i would love to set a different kind of woman on stage and she might not be as elegant as the classical ballet world would want to. So it's finding that balance because I love classical ballet. Let's be clear about that. And, um, you know, you need so much power and dedication to do that art form. Um, so I want to honor it also in my work and not say, well, from now on, we shouldn't be, you know, classically trained when it's not at all that. But finding, you know, this... Um, new aesthetical language with the aesthetic of ballet try to find that balance in that and you know putting real people on stage and not fairy tale characters yeah it's interesting because we're at a, a, a moment um, with social media particularly and um, just the period in which we we currently live in where it, it to me it appears that women are in order to be beautiful, we are being asked to become very plastic looking, you know, this heavy makeup and all of this contouring and we are starting to look like a Barbie doll in terms of what we're being asked to portray as a beauty. Um, yeah, that's because so many pictures are being taken of you and you can take yourself your picture and of course women are never happy with how they look in the mirror. So we did it ourselves, yeah. unfortunately. And you know, the fact I think the fact that you can, you know, uh, zoom in on every inch of your body and then there's a filter well maybe that filter can be your makeup but it's true that it becomes more, more and more I mean I see it in the tube here in London it becomes a mask and in the tube you see that it's a mask you see the layers and it's yeah it's very unfortunate that but I think it's not just society we are also part of society so we put that own pressure on us to be perfect and you know at some time uh, because you see very young women doing that and then when you get older it's also you know the the whole question of ageism that uh, at after a certain age you're not expected to be that you know relevant for society you have to give your place to the younger generation so that makeup and the botox and everything is there in place for that to not happen at the age that it happens but maybe you know prolong that moment that people think that you're young um, and you know would would appreciate that you look young I don't know uh, <laughs> instead of you know appreciating the, the experience of yeah. life and and the knowledge that you uh, gain you know growing older in your work you, you create very strong very present characters um, in, in your work how how do you 
and bring these characters to life? How do you pour so much into them? Uh, well, I, I worked a lot with actors and uh, the good, you know, I talked to them about all the, the characters that they're doing, that they were so believable. How do you do that? Is it technique? And then one of them said, no, I am a criminal. But I can be a woman too, you know, we all have it in us. So it's up to me to uh, put myself into the, you know, into the shoes of a character and to try to think how would he react um, and then share, you know, my observations with the dancers and make him understand that it, he should not copy me, but he should find a way of my thinking so I'm not doing this movement and that means that you know I'm measuring something because you know I'm Diego Rivera I mean I'm sorry I'm talking about Frida because I'm working on it right now but you know he has this movement and for me it's it's you know he's measuring where the head will be or something like that so if I say that out loud he'll take that thought and not just copy the movement so therefore they become more alive and they remain alive on stage as opposed to having an interesting choreography on music. You mentioned um, you're working on Carlo at the moment. Yes. So tell us about uh, your work that you're doing. Um, so I remember in 2016 I was invited by English National Ballet to make uh, uh, 45 minutes of uh, Frida Kahlo which I had called at the time Broken Wings. And 10 days before the premiere, we had our first tech rehearsal on stage. And I had an intuition. I was like, I think this should be a full length. So I went to see uh, Tamara Rojo 10 days before the premiere. Like, you know, it's she gets born, accident, she dies. I mean, I, I, there's no time to really come really deep into who she is because I want to say everything and I can't say everything. And then, you know, I do want to have an, an ending. Um, so, you know, she said, okay, I'll take that ID, uh, let me tell you later. And then, it, you know, I found out that they were not interested in the full length because they had too many already uh, other plans organized with other choreographers. And I said, okay. And then, you know, a year ago, the Dutch National Ballet, um, no, it was two years ago, I made a piece for them for 32 dancers and it was a huge success. And the director said, well, I would, you know, I'm still looking for new. A narrative but not completely new something you know so we're talking about streetcar the possibility of that and then he said but what do you want to do and I said well my dream is to do a full length of a broken wings and so he said well let's do your dream so here we are uh, almost 2020 and the dream is finally coming through from you know uh, from 2006 so in four years time I just you know put it out there in the universe and it's finally coming to me and you know it's it's um, so nice to be able to expand some of the scenes so we have the same sets instead of one cube it's going to be two cubes we have the same costumes but we are you know pimping them up and we have a little bit more characters and we have we had four you know skeletons we're going to have 16 skeletons um, you know the deer character of the deer that was uh, you know only came at the very end for me now the deer really represent her solitude whenever she's alone and stuck at home in her bed. So the deer will come already from the very beginning of the piece. So all of this, I could, you know, meditate on all these aspects. And, um, and it's gonna come, uh, yeah, 6th of February, that's the big date where we're revealing the Frida piece uh, in Amsterdam. How, honestly, uh, the piece is so beautiful. I am 
just so excited to hear that it's going to be a full-length ballet. But it must be quite difficult actually taking a 45-minute piece and turning it into a full-length. What were the challenges for you? Uh, no, it's not that difficult no. because you know already okay. what works, what doesn't work. Where I was frustrated of feeling that it was going so fast, but you have to take it all apart. You can't say, well, that was a 45, the finale will put there and I will put something as a second act. Every scene has to be you know, rethought. And you have to think, is the, was the length, so that's one thing, is the length of each scene um, the right value for this full length? And um, and then the new scenes, because you know it's it's not going to be a biography. It is a portrait about a woman who endured quite a few uh, tragic events in her life. And so I'm taking those tragic events, and then into through those events, we you know we land in her paintings because she always said that she painted her life. Um, so yeah, we reworked it, and and you know I can't wait to to see it. And you know I'm happy that some of the scenes will get more time and you know i'm happy that uh, the role of diego rivera will get more space uh, i'm happy that i can show that she was as promiscuous as her husband because now she was the victim the lady one year after she got married there's already a, a letter exchange between her and nicholas murray with whom she had a 10-year relationship so you know it's uh, i feel that it will be more honest to who she was and you know, as a, a Colombian descent woman, I'm so happy to bring some of my Latin American uh, uh, background into you know a country like uh, Holland. Uh, the piece is it is like a painting, and the the sets and the the costumes are that they were so unexpected, you know, quite groundbreaking. Um, and as you say, it was a few years ago now, but yeah. still the work is so incredible and visually just so stunning as well. And it's, where did, where, where did you come up with this? It was a, how did you, it's like almost like a, you know, her paintings have been, you know, pulled apart and put back together and there's transitions and color and it's so yeah. beautiful. So I, I looked at her painting, cause you know, you're making a portrait of a woman and you can, you know, my uh, set designer said, shall we use, you know, a video? I'm like, no, that's not Frida. It's just, it's, it's so much, you know, the, the brush. And, and so I, my dream was to uh, introduce Mexicanismo and the painting style to an audience that wouldn't know it. And so that when you look at the ballet and then you see a painting like, oh, there's some similarities. So it's very two dimensional. And I also said to my dancers, don't expect to, you know, go like, you know, all these uh, quirky movements. And it's all going to be very straight to the audience because she also did a lot of portraits looking and, gla uh, you know, glancing at herself and glancing at the audience. So everything is very straight. Uh, and then, yeah, the, the, the colors. Uh, I mean, in Mexico, when you go to the Casa Azul, that blue, that Eve Klein blue is like, really did you paint your house yes she did and there was you know so the greenery and and you know that little um a pyramid with all the pre-columbian art and indeed there was a deer and she had monkeys and so it's all there it's all real and she did uh use the fact of her you know her fighting for the the, the nationalism of the you know the wanting the mexican identity back 
that was the motive for her also to dress like a Mexican woman, the Tijuana dress. Um, so, yeah, in a, when she arrived in America, she was sort of a weirdo, but they kind of liked it. It was like artistic, like, whoa, very avant-garde. And I wanted that to be reflected in the piece, in the very simplistic way that those paintings look like. What they say is not that simplistic. And so it's, it was trying to find that balance between, you know, yeah, these two layers. And um, yeah, the, the idea of the black cube, uh, it was very simple. It actually happened on the first scene that I was writing. I thought, oh my, how do you portray um, a woman that was most of the time, you know, bedridden or in a wheelchair and it's a dance performance? <laughs> how do you do that? So very quickly, like 15 seconds later, I need a stand up bed. So I call my set design. I say, I need a cube. She was like, what do you mean? Well, the bed has to stand. So I want two doors that open and I want a bed there. And so, you know, then she was like, oh, well, maybe every side could open. And that's how we, you know, found uh, the idea of that Frida Kahlo would get born out of a black cube. And that when you spin the wheel or you spin the cube every time you have a different moment in her life. So, yeah, it's, um, it's you know, finding a translation that takes more time than actually choreographing the steps. And, uh, yeah. Well, we learned so much um, about her through the work, but what did you learn about yourself in creating this work? Is it, did you discover anything? Oh, I, I always say that, um, you know, I've been now dedicating my uh, 16 years of my life as a professional choreographer, although I, you know, choreograph since I'm 11 years old. And after 16 years, I think that I know how a process is going to go. And every time it's a surprise because there's always something that doesn't go as planned. And it is very unfortunate that you learn the, the most things when things don't go as planned. Um, what did I learn? I learned that I love surrealism. I learned that I love humor and I was very fortunate that Frida Kahlo also loved humor and I thought that that would be a, a nice juxtaposition of her, you know, traumatic moments in, in dramatic moments with, you know, the skeletons bringing up a little bit of uh, hello, you know, uh, humor to the storytelling and, you know, again, for the pace and the breathing of the, the, the work, it, it fits really well. Um, what did I learn? That I don't think that I've learned it, but I still like, uh, you know, telling stories, although it's very difficult. Um, and I love colors on stage, and I know that sometimes that's not hip and trendy to have such a colorful piece. But, you know, like I said, from the very first piece that I made, um, and that I was very embarrassed that I wasn't hip and trendy, I guess that's my calling. I'm never going to be that, and it's fine. And uh, I feel... I like the fact that I feel um, released from the pressure of trying to be trendy. I'm, I'm not going to even try that. And it's, it's nice to have that response of, you know, audience member thinking, oh, wow, we were not expecting that. I'm like, yeah, because, <laughs> because I didn't follow the trend. Uh, so I'm going to keep doing that. I'm going to keep telling the young choreographers to do that. Well, it certainly leads to great surprises when you go see your work, which I absolutely love, because you, do, you don't really ever know what you're about to see, which is super exciting, actually. But over the 16 years, what has been some of the, the greatest challenges that you have faced, and how have you overcome those, do you think? 
I think with each piece there are great challenges. Uh, you know, as a choreographer, when you're young, you start at a young age, 30 years old for me, where I really had to learn how to manage a rehearsal and how to deal with groups and uh, you know the group psychology, the psychology of a dancer, how do you approach them, how you, you don't come and bulldozer bam into them because that doesn't work. So I had to learn by making unfortunately mistakes and I think that I found a right um, balance between being very exigent and demanding but using humor and you know the joy of being in, in a studio to approach my dancers. Um, so that has been challenge. Frida Kahlo is obviously your next, um, you know, next big piece that's coming out. What's after Frida? What's after Frida? Is there a life behind after Frida? <laughs> uh, well, I'm preparing uh, to reset Vendetta on Tosa Valley. That is uh, a narrative that I wrote myself uh, based on The Godfather for Le Grand Ballet Canadien a year and a half ago. And as I said, I want new roles for women. I want a new perspective on women. And so in my story, the Godfather has four children, three sons and a daughter, and it's the 50s and the daughter is getting married and all that, that. But then as he die, when he dies, he chooses his daughter to follow him as the next Godfather. So love the story i want to share it with as many people as possible and so it's going to be uh, reprised by the tosa ballet this season so that's right after i finish premiere dresses out of frida and here i go by plane to tosa uh, then i am uh, preparing evita for ballet hispanico which is going to be next season um, i am uh, reworking my uh, dangerous liaison for royal new zealand ballet that's for the summer uh, it's uh, something that I made three, four years ago and it was quite short and compact and uh, I want next to the main story, I want also a bit like uh, Downtown Abbey, uh, Dangerous Liaison for the Servants. Um, so I'm looking forward to do that, also to discover a new culture and New Zealand is you know, very far away. Um, what else? Yeah, many other things. Um, also things I'm not allowed to talk about yet <laughs> because contracts haven't really been signed. But yeah. You, you produce so much work. How do you fit it all in? It's, I, I was literally counting up the work and trying dividing it by your 16 year career. <laughs> and uh, I, was quite, I was quite astounded by how much work you do every single year. Yeah. Um, since I was a, a kid, I guess, the, the, you know, I inherited the um, engineer mind of my father to be very uh, organized and to see schemes and be mathematical about you know some things in my life so um, it starts by just answering emails <laughs> very simply and uh, uh, being disciplined because of course you know sometimes I have a free week but I'm not entirely free I always have to research or find music and then you know once I'm in the studio I try to be at one place and enjoy that moment with the dancers and um, I'm, you know, blessed with a very good health and a lot of energy. And I'm pretty much more, yeah, every day I'm good humored. So I'm always in the mood to have a good day, although not every day goes as well as I would want to. And yeah, I, I know that one day that energy will fade. That's, you know, the, the nature and that I will have to give my place or, you know, that I would love to uh, 
yeah, find platforms for younger choreographers. But for now, it's uh, being organized and disciplined that makes a, yeah that makes it happen that I can do that much work. And you mentioned young choreographers, and this is my final question, I promise. <laughs> um, what advice would you give to young choreographers who, particularly young female choreographers who are looking at your career and thinking, I would love to follow in your footsteps? Uh, never follow someone in their footsteps. <laughs> uh, I believe, and that's not just for female choreographers, that every choreographer, if, you, if it's really your passion, um, that you want to say something through the art form of dance you and sometimes you don't succeed it's not because you're not good enough maybe you're not prepared yet uh, it's to find your platform and so some you know it's the easiest is to start where you uh, you know were a dancer but sometimes that company is too big or too contemporary or too classical and your style doesn't you know doesn't fit uh, the vision of the director so I would say don't despair, but go out in the world and find where they're going to appreciate your work. Um, so that's one. The other one is that um, you have to save money. You have to budget your freedom. <clears throat> so two years before I quit dancing, I knew that it was coming up. I could feel that I was not going to be happy any longer in the frame of an institution of a ballet company. Um, and so I saved a lot of money and I lived in a squad for 11 euros a month and I saved a lot of money so that um, I could be free of being unsuccessful <laughs> because it sounds weird but you know nobody is waiting for you and nobody is going to invite you I mean you know, I stopped dancing and I had two invitations. One was the Scapino Valley and Dutch National Valley in one season. So that was a great season. And then the season after wasn't so great because nobody really knew me. And, you know, I couldn't go back to Dutch National Valley and Scapino Valley. So I, you know, wanted always to have money so that I could be uh, without a job for six months. And then that became, you know, money to be without a job for one year because may God forbid you get injured or, you know, things get cancelled, which happened to me. I had once in my third year as a choreographer, a three project got either cancelled or postponed. And there I was doing nothing and not earning any money. Uh, but, you know, if you get a job on the side as a teacher, then you can't uh, get out of it so easily and freely when that other job comes in. So. Yeah, my next advice is save money, money budget your freedom. Um, and then, you know, the third one is what I always say, don't try to be trendy. Try to be as honest as possible. And even though if you think, well, if I'm me, it's not interesting enough maybe for an audience, I think the more personal you become, the more universal uh, the message gets across. And I think that as an audience, you can feel if someone was true to what they wanted to do or, or someone was trying to be interesting. Um, and you always will have people that don't like your work. That's fine. It's uh, you can't please everyone and you're definitely never pleasing yourself because you always want to do a better piece. I always say that I, um, I'm practicing for that one masterpiece that I'll do one day. So every piece is flawed um, and it's sad, but at the same time, it gives me, you know, energy and, and, you know, it gives me a reason to do another piece. 
because I got to practice because it's not good enough yet and one day it will be. So the hope that one day I'll make that amazing piece makes me you know, stand up every day and, and practice and try over and over again and fail and try again. So yeah, don't despair. It's about, you know, I think every career is about hard work, uh, belief and, and of course talent. And you know, it's a craft, so you gotta practice your craftsmanship and you know some choreographers are lucky to be very good at the age of 25 others become very good at the age of 40 and you, it doesn't mean that you have less to say than the young talented choreographer so that was not really aimed to women in general but i don't feel like i'm a choreographer that my gender um, is who i am as a choreographer it doesn't define me so it's Absolutely. not all the choreographers out there Thank you so much, Annabelle. Thank you for having me. And for all of our wonderful listeners who are in Amsterdam or in the US, um, look out for the new work coming, uh, the full-length ballet of the Frida Kahlo and many other pieces of Annabelle's work, which you'll be able to see wherever you are because there we have an audience all around the world and her work is constantly everywhere. She's mentioned so many wonderful countries. So uh, check out her website, stay up to date and on Instagram. Yes, thank you follow me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Don't forget to subscribe. We've got some incredible interviews coming up with principal ballerinas and renowned choreographers. We love dance and ballet and we hope you'll love us. Join us on Facebook and Twitter.